Section 1, Part 3 of the Introduction to Timaeus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lenny. Timaeus by Plato. Translated by Benjamin Jowett. Introduction and Analysis. Section 1, Part 3. Having now before us the causes out of which the rest of our discourse is to be framed, let us go back to the point at which we began, and add a fair ending to our tale. As I said at first, all things were originally a chaos in which there was no order or proportion. The elements of this chaos were arranged by the Creator, and out of them he made the world. Of the divine he himself was the author, but he committed to his offspring the creation of the mortal. From him they received the immortal soul, but themselves made the body to be its vehicle, and constructed within another soul, which was mortal, and subject to terrible affections, pleasure, the inciter of evil, pain, which deters from good, rashness and fear, foolish counsellors anger, hard to be appeased, hope, easily led astray. These they mingled with irrational sense and all-daring love, according to necessary laws, and so framed men. And fearing to pollute the divine element, they gave the mortal soul a separate habitation in the breast, parted off from the head by a narrow isthmus, and as in a house the women's apartments are divided from the men's, the cavity of the thorax was divided into two parts, a higher and a lower. The higher of the two, which is the seat of courage and anger, lies nearer to the head, between the midriff and the neck, and assists reason in restraining the desires. The heart is the house of guard, in which all the veins meet, and through them, reason sends her commands to the extremity of her kingdom. When the passions are in revolt, or danger approaches from without, then the heart beats and swells, and the creating powers, knowing this, implanted in the body the soft and bloodless substance of the lung, having a porous and springy nature, like a sponge, and being kept cool by drink and air which enters through the trachea. The part of the soul which desires meat and drink was placed between the midriff and navel, where they made a sort of manger, and here they bound it down, like a wild animal, away from the council chamber, and leaving the better principle undisturbed to advise quietly for the good of the whole. For the Creator knew that the belly would not listen to reason, and was under the power of idols and fancies. Wherefore, he framed the liver to connect with the lower nature, contriving that it should be compact and bright and sweet, and also bitter and smooth, in order that the power of thought which originates in the mind might there be reflected, terrifying the belly with the elements of bitterness and gall, in a suffusion of bilious colors when the liver is contracted, and causing pain and misery by twisting out of its place the lobe, and closing up the vessels and gates. And the converse happens when some gentle inspiration, coming from intelligence, 
mirrors the opposite fancies, giving rest and sweetness and freedom, and at night moderation and peace accompanied with prophetic insight when reason and sense are asleep. For the authors of our being, in obedience to their father's will, and in order to make men as good as they could, gave to the liver the power of divination, which is never active when men are awake or in health, but when they are under the influence of some disorder or enthusiasm, then they receive intimations, which have to be interpreted by others who are called prophets, but should rather be called interpreters of prophecy. After death, these intimations become unintelligible. The spleen, which is situated in the neighborhood on the left side, keeps the liver bright and clean, as a napkin does a mirror, and the evacuations of the liver are received into it, and being a hollow tissue, it is for a time swollen with these impurities, but when the body is purged, it returns to its natural size. The truth concerning the soul can only be established by the word of God. Still, we may venture to assert what is probable, both concerning soul and body. The creative powers were aware of our tendency to excess, and so, when they made the belly to be a receptacle for food, in order that men might not perish by insatiable gluttony, they formed the convolutions of the intestines, in this way retarding the passage of food through the body, lest mankind should be absorbed in eating and drinking, and the whole race become impervious to divine philosophy. The creation of bones and flesh was on this wise. The foundation of these is the marrow, which binds together body and soul, and the marrow is made out of such of the primary triangles as are adapted by their perfection to produce all the four elements. These God took and mingled them in due proportion, making as many kinds of marrow as there were hereafter to be kinds of souls. The receptacle of the divine soul he made round, and called that portion of the marrow brain, intending that the vessel containing the substance should be the head. The remaining part had divided into long and round figures, and to these as to anchors, fastening the mortal soul, he proceeded to make the rest of the body, first forming for both parts a covering of bone. The bone was formed by sifting pure, smooth earth and wetting it with marrow. It was then thrust alternately into fire and water, and thus rendered insoluble by either. Of bone he made a globe, which he placed around the brain, leaving a narrow opening, and around the marrow of the neck and spine he formed the vertebrae, like hinges, which extended from the head through the hole of the trunk. And as the bone was brittle and liable to mortify and destroy the marrow by too great rigidity and susceptibility to heat and cold, he contrived sinews and flesh, the first to give flexibility, the second to guard against heat and cold, and to be a protection against falls, containing a warm moisture which in summer exudes and cools the body, and in winter is a defense against cold. Having this in view, the Creator mingled earth with fire and water, and mixed with them a ferment of acid and salt, so as to firm pulpy flesh. 
but the sinews he made of a mixture of bone and unfermented flesh, giving them a mean nature between the two and a yellow color. Hence they were more gluttonous than flesh, but softer than bone. The bones which have most of the living soul within them he covered with the thinnest film of flesh. Those which have least of it he lodged deeper. At the joints he diminished the flesh, in order not to impede the flexure of the limbs, and also to avoid clogging the perceptions of the mind. About the thighs and arms, which have no sense because there is little soul in the marrow, and about the inner bones, he laid the flesh thicker. For where the flesh is thicker, there is less feeling, except in certain parts which the Creator has made solely of flesh, as, for example, the tongue. Had the combination of solid bone and thick flesh been consistent with acute perceptions, the Creator would have given man a sinewy and fleshy head, and then he would have lived twice as long. But our Creators were of opinion that a shorter life which was better was preferable to a longer which was worse, and therefore they covered the head with thin bone, and placed the sinews at the extremity of the head round the neck, and fastened the jawbones to them below the face. And they framed the mouth, having teeth and tongue and lips, with a view to the necessary and the good, for food is a necessity, and the river of speech is the best of rivers. Still, the head could not be left a bare globe of bone, on account of the extremes of heat and cold, nor be allowed to become dull and senseless by an overgrowth of flesh. Wherefore, it was covered by a peel or skin which met and grew by the help of the cerebral humor. The diversity of the sutures was caused by the struggle of the food against the courses of the soul. The skin of the head was pierced by fire, and out of the punctures came forth a moisture, part liquid and part of a skinny nature, which was hardened by the pressure of the external cold, and became hair. And God gave hair to the head of man to be a light covering, so that it might not interfere with his perceptions. Nails were formed by combining sinew, skin, and bone, and were made by the creators with a view to the future, when, as they knew, women and other animals who would require them would be framed out of men. The gods also mingled natures akin to that of men with other forms and perceptions. Thus trees and plants were created, which were originally wild and have been adapted by cultivation to our use. They partake of that third kind of life which is seated between the midriff and the navel, and is altogether passive and incapable of reflection. When the creators had furnished all these natures for our sustenance, they cut channels through our bodies, as in a garden, watering them with a perennial stream. Two were cut down the back, along the backbone, where the skin and flesh meet, one on the right and the other on the left, having the marrow of generation between them. In the next place, they divided the veins about the head and interlaced them with each other, in order that they might form an additional link between the head and the body and that the sensations from both sides might be diffused throughout the body. In the third place, 
they contrived the passage of liquids, which may be explained in this way. Finer bodies retain coarser, but not the coarser the finer, and the belly is capable of retaining food, but not fire and air. God therefore formed a network of fire and air to irrigate the veins, having within it two lesser nets, and stretched cords reaching from both the lesser nets to the extremity of the outer net. The inner parts of the net were made by him of fire, the lesser nets in their cavities of air. The two latter he made to pass into the mouth, the one ascending by the air pipes from the lungs, the other by the side of the air pipes from the belly. The entrance to the first he divided into two parts, both of which he made to meet at the channels of the nose, that when the mouth was closed, the passage connected with it might still be fed with air. The cavity of the network he spread around the hollows of the body, making the entire receptacle to flow into and out of the lesser nets, and the lesser nets into and out of it, while the outer net found a way into and out of the pores of the body, and the internal heat followed the air to and fro. These, as we affirm, are the phenomena of respiration. And all this process takes place in order that the body may be watered and cooled and nourished, and the meat and drink digested and liquefied and carried into the veins. The causes of respiration have now to be considered. The exhalation of the breath through the mouth and nostrils displaces the external air, and at the same time leaves a vacuum into which, through the pores, the air which is displaced enters. Also, the vacuum which is made when the air is exhaled through the pores is filled up by the inhalation of breath through the mouth and nostrils. The explanation of this double phenomenon is as follows. Elements move towards their natural places. Now, as every animal has within him a fountain of fire, the air which is inhaled through the mouth and nostrils, on coming into contact with this, is heated, and when heated, in accordance with the law of attraction, it escapes, by the weight entered, toward the place of fire. On leaving the body, it is cooled, and drives round the air which it displaces through the pores into the empty lungs. This again is in turn heated by the internal fire, and escapes, as it entered, through the pores. The phenomena of medical cupping-glasses, of swallowing, and of the hurling of bodies, are to be explained on a similar principle, as also sounds which are sometimes discordant on account of the inequality of them, and again harmonious by reason of equality. The slower sounds reaching the swifter, when they begin to pause, by degrees assimilate with them, whence arises a pleasure which even the unwise feel, and which to the wise becomes a higher sense of delight, being an imitation of divine harmony in mortal motions. Streams flow, lightnings play, ember and the magnet attract, not by reason of attraction, but because nature abhors a vacuum, and because things, when compounded or dissolved, move different ways, each to its own place. I will now return to the phenomena of respiration. 
the fire, entering the belly, minces the food, and as it escapes, fills the veins, by drawing after it the divided portions, and thus the streams of nutriment are diffused through the body. The fruits or herbs which are our daily sustenance take all sorts of colors when intermixed, but the color of red or fire predominates, and hence the liquid which we call blood is red, being the nurturing principle of the body, whence all parts are watered and empty places filled. The process of repletion and depletion is produced by the attraction of like to like after the manner of the universal motion. The external elements, by their attraction, are always diminishing the substance of the body. The particles of blood, too, formed out of the newly digested food, are attracted towards kindred elements within the body, and so fill up the void. When more is taken away than flows in, then we decay, and when less, we grow and increase. The young of every animal has the triangles new and closely locked together, and yet the entire frame is soft and delicate, being newly made of marrow and nurtured on milk. These triangles are sharper than those which enter the body from without in the shape of food, and therefore they cut them up. But as life advances, the triangles wear out, and are no longer able to assimilate food, and at length, when the bonds which unite the triangles of the marrow become undone, then in turn unloose the bonds of the soul, and if the release be according to nature, she then flies away with joy. For the death which is natural is pleasant, but that which is caused by violence is painful. Every one may understand the origin of diseases. They may be occasioned by the disarrangement or disproportion of the elements out of which the body is framed. This is the origin of many of them, but the worst of all owe their severity to the following causes. There is a natural order in the human frame, according to which the flesh and sinews are made of blood, the sinews out of the fibers, and the flesh out of the congealed substance which is formed by separation from the fibers. The gluttonous matter which comes away from the sinews and the flesh not only binds the flesh to the bones, but nourishes the bones and waters the marrow. When these processes take place in regular order, the body is in health. But when the flesh wastes and returns into the veins, there is discolored blood, as well as air in the veins, having acid and salt qualities, from which is generated every sort of phlegm and bile. All things go the wrong way, and cease to give nourishment to the body, no longer preserving their natural courses, but at war with themselves, and destructive to the constitution of the body. The oldest part of the flesh, which is hard to decompose, blackens from long burning, and from being corroded grows bitter, and as the bitter element refines away, becomes acid. When tinged with blood, the bitter substance has a red color, and this, when mixed with black, takes the hue of grass. Or again, the bitter substance has an auburn color, when new flesh is decomposed by the internal flame. To all which phenomena, 
some physician or philosopher who was able to see the one in many has given the name of bile. The various kinds of bile have names answering to their callers. Lymph or serum is of two kinds. First, the way of blood, which is gentle. Secondly, the secretion of dark and bitter bile, which, when mingled under the influence of heat with salt, is malignant and is called acid phlegm. There is also white phlegm, formed by the decomposition of young and tender flesh, and covered with little bubbles, separately invisible, but becoming visible when collected. The water of tears and perspiration and similar substances is also the watery part of fresh phlegm. All these humors become sources of disease when the blood is replenished in irregular ways, and not by food or drink. The danger, however, is not so great when the foundation remains, for then there is a possibility of recovery. But when the substance which unites the flesh and bones is diseased, and is no longer renewed from the muscles and sinews, and, instead of being oily and smooth and gluttonous, becomes rough and salt and dry, then the fleshy parts fall away and leave the sinews bare and full of brine, and the flesh gets back again into the circulation of the blood and makes the previously mentioned disorders still greater. There are other and worse diseases which are prior to these, as when the bone, through the density of the flesh, does not receive sufficient air, and becomes stagnant and gangrened, and crumbling away passes into the food, and the food into the flesh, and the flesh returns again into the blood. Worst of all and most fatal is the disease of the marrow, by which the whole course of the body is reversed. There is a third class of diseases, which are produced, some by wind, and some by phlegm, and some by bile. When the lung, which is the steward of the air, is obstructed by rooms, and in one part no air, and in another too much enters in, then the parts which are unrefreshed by air corrode, and other parts are distorted by the excess of air, and in this manner painful diseases are produced. The most painful are caused by wind generated within the body, which gets about the great sinews of the shoulders. These are termed tetanus. The cure of them is difficult, and in most cases they are relieved only by fever. White phlegm, which is dangerous if kept in, by reason of the air bubbles, is not equally dangerous if able to escape through the pores, although it variegates the body, generating diverse kinds of epilepsy or the sacred disease. Acid and salt phlegm is the source of catarrh. Inflammations originate in bile, which is sometimes relieved by boils and swellings, but when detained, and above all when mingled with pure blood, generates many inflammatory disorders, disturbing the position of the fibers which are scattered about in the blood in order to maintain the balance of rare and dense which is necessary to its regular circulation. If the bile, which is only stale blood or liquefied flesh, comes in little by little, it is congealed by the fibers and produces internal cold and shuddering. When it enters with more of a flood, it overcomes the fibers by its heat and reaches the spinal marrow, and burning up the cables of the soul, sets her free from the body. 
when, on the other hand, the body, though wasted, still holds out, then the bile is expelled, like an exile from a factious state, causing associating diarrheas and dysenteries and similar disorders. The body which is diseased from the effects of fire is in a continual fever. When air is the agent, the fever is quotidian. When water, the fever intermits a day. When earth, which is the most sluggish element, the fever intermits three days and is with difficulty shaken off. Of mental disorders, there are two sorts. One, madness. The other, ignorance and they may be justly attributed to disease. Excessive pleasures or pains are among the greatest diseases, and deprive men of their senses. When the seed about the spinal marrow is too abundant, the body has too great pleasures and pains, and during a great part of his life, he who is the subject of them is more or less mad. He is often thought bad, but this is a mistake, for the truth is that the intemperance of lust is due to the fluidity of the marrow produced by the loose consistency of the bones. And this is true of vice in general, which is commonly regarded as disgraceful, whereas it is really involuntary and arises from a bad habit of the body and evil education. In like manner, the soul is often made vicious by the influence of bodily pain. The briny phlegm and other bitter and bilious humors wander over the body and find no exit, but are compressed within, and mingle their own vapors with the motions of the soul, and are carried to the three places of the soul, creating infinite varieties of trouble and melancholy, of rashness and cowardice, of forgetfulness and stupidity. When men are in this evil plight of body, and evil forms of government and evil discourses are separated, and there is no education to save them, they are corrupted through two causes, but of neither of them are they really the authors. For the planters are to blame rather than the plants, the educators and not the educated. Still, we should endeavor to attain virtue and avoid vice, but this is part of another subject. Enough of disease. I have now to speak of the means by which the mind and body are to be preserved, a higher theme than the other. The good is the beautiful, and the beautiful is the symmetrical, and there is no greater or fairer symmetry than that of body and soul, as the contrary is the greatest of deformities. A leg or an arm too long or too short is at once ugly and unserviceable. And the same is true if body and soul are disproportionate. For a strong and impassioned soul may fret the pygmy body to decay, and so produce convulsions and other evils. The violence of controversy, or the earnestness of inquiry, will often generate inflammations and rheums, which are not understood or assigned to their true cause by the professors of medicine. And in like manner, the body may be too much for the soul, darkening the reason and quickening the animal desires. The only security is to preserve the balance of the two, and to this end the mathematician or philosopher must practice gymnastics, and the gymnast must cultivate music. The parts of the body, too, must be treated in the same way. 
they should receive their appropriate exercise. For the body is set in motion when it is heated and cooled by the elements which enter in, or is dried up and moistened by external things, and, if given up to these processes when at rest, it is liable to destruction. But the natural motion, as in the world, so also in the human frame, produces harmony and divides hostile powers. The best exercise is the spontaneous motion of the body, as in gymnastics, because most akin to the motion of mind. Not so good is the motion of which the source is in another, as in sailing or riding. Least good when the body is at rest and the motion is in parts only, which is a species of motion imparted by physic. This should only be resorted to by men of sense in extreme cases. Lesser diseases are not to be irritated by medicine. For every disease is akin to the living being and has an appointed term, just as life has, which depends on the form of the triangles and cannot be protracted when they are worn out. And he who instead of accepting his destiny endeavors to prolong his life by medicine is likely to multiply and magnify his diseases. Regimen and not medicine is the true cure when a man has time at his disposal. Enough of the nature of men and of the body, and of training and education. The subject is a great one, and cannot be adequately treated as an appendage to another. To sum up all in a word, there are three kinds of soul located within us, and any one of them, if remaining inactive, becomes very weak, if exercised, very strong. Wherefore, we should duly train and exercise all three kinds. The divine soul God lodged in the head to raise us, like plants which are not of earthly origin, to our kindred, for the head is nearest to heaven. He who is intent upon the gratification of his desires and cherishes the mortal soul has all his ideas mortal, and is himself mortal in the truest sense. But he who seeks after knowledge and exercises the divine part of himself in godly and immortal thoughts attains to truth and immortality as far as is possible to men, and also to happiness, while he is training up within him the divine principle and indwelling power of order. There is only one way in which one person can benefit another, and that is by assigning to him his proper nurture and motion. To the motions of the soul answer the motions of the universe, and by the study of these the individual is restored to his original nature. Thus we have finished the discussion of the universe, which, according to our original intention, has now been brought down to the creation of man. Completeness seems to require that something should be briefly said about other animals, first of women, who are probably degenerate and cowardly men. And when they degenerated, the gods implanted in men the desire of union with them, creating in men one animate substance, and in woman another, in the following manner. The outlet for liquids they connected with the living principle of the spinal marrow, which the man has a desire to emit, into the fruitful womb of the woman. This is like a fertile field in which the seed is quickened and matured, 
and at last brought to light. When this desire is unsatisfied, the man is overmastered by the power of the generative organs, and the woman is subjected to disorders from the obstruction of the passages of the breath, until the two meet and pluck the fruit of the tree. The race of birds was created out of innocent, light-minded men, who thought to pursue the study of the heavens by sight. These were transformed into birds, and grew feathers instead of hair. The race of wild animals were men who had no philosophy, and never looked up to heaven or used the courses of the head, but followed only the influences of passion. Naturally, they turned to their kindred earth, and put their forelegs to the ground, and their heads were crushed into strange oblong forms. Some of them have four feet, and some of them more than four, the latter, who are the more senseless, drawing closer to their native element. The most senseless of all have no limbs, and trail their whole body on the ground. The fourth kind are the inhabitants of the waters. These are made out of the most senseless and ignorant and impure of men whom God placed in the uttermost parts of the world, in return for their utter ignorance, and caused them to respire water instead of the pure element of air. Such are the laws by which animals pass into one another. And so the world received animals, mortal and immortal, and was fulfilled with them, and became a visible God, comprehending the visible, made in the image of the intellectual being the one perfect, only begotten heaven. End of section 1